Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling Hit Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode 43. I couldn't even get the intro out. This is the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history from 1870 to 1920, although sometimes we go uh, into the 30s, and today we're definitely going to go into the 30s. But joining me in the studio, we have my cousin, Dangerous Dan, and back as a guest is my oldest son, Trey. Uh, who has given up his former profession as a mute and has uh, joined the podcast. <laughs> I, I do. Have, I have a YouTube channel, so I'm not that bad. <laughs> Just around me, then. <laughs> it's because you're his dad. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> hey, silence is the music of life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Solomon, when he guest starred on here, I think he was shocked because... He's never heard me talk that much. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. I said you didn't think you didn't know Papa could talk this much, did you? He said no. <laughs> so I probably talk more on here than I do probably the whole rest of the week combined or close to it. So I say usually I've always I'm I'm well playing games with my buddies that I'm usually talking. You, you know I love El, El Dragon, uh, Return of a Warrior, and one of the characters, one of my favorite in there, is his head of security, Ishiro Tanaka. And he's pretty quiet because he believes in the old Japanese adage, only speak when words are better than silence. Yeah. And sometimes I think we'd probably be a lot better off as a world if more people followed that you know, simple advice. Yeah, because we live in a world where everybody speaks, but nothing important is ever said. And, and they a lot sp- of people speak before they think. And Yeah. Or it's just one constant stream. And mm-hmm. that's what I always tell people. If you want me to realize something's important, mm-hmm. you have to put an emphasis on it. Mm-hmm. If everything comes at me at the exact same volume, at the exact same tone, in a flood, how am I supposed to pick out the important stuff? That's almost every college professor I've ever had. Well, that's true. <laughs> I, I have to admit, historians tend to wander a bit. Yeah. I've, I've been known to wander every once in a while. So... I guess I'll give the update first. This is going to come out. Let me put my thinking cap on. On Monday, January 22nd. Mm-hmm. The book won't be out yet, but it'll probably be pretty close. I have finished the uh, Ed Strangler Lewis <clears throat> book, which will be called Origins of a Legend, The Making of Ed Strangler Lewis. And it is about his career from when he made his professional wrestling debut until he joins the 1915 New York International Wrestling Tournament in uh, New York in November 1915. And I will say a lot of the stuff that was uh, believed about his early career was a lot of it was fiction. And a lot of that fiction came from Lewis and Billy Sandow. Mm-hmm. But um, the book, uh, my goal with the book is to correct a lot of that and set the record straight about his early career, which was fascinating yeah. enough without all the embellishments and that. Mm-hmm. And we have a few people that were stupid enough to try to shoot with him. So, <laughs> and then, uh, well, we're going to review uh, MMA style bout today. Early MMA, not traditional MMA today, where MMA today is athletes who are cross trained in various disciplines and are competing. Early MMA were style versus style, so boxers versus wrestlers, boxers mm-hmm. versus jiu-jitsu. And we're going to do one of the early boxer versus wrestler bouts, which actually was from our hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, in uh, 1935. I actually thought it was a lot earlier than that, but it was November of 1935. Oh, was it? Okay, it was. Yeah. 
And then we're going to review one of the more famous boxer versus wrestler matches that we do have a little bit of footage of, and that's Judo Gene LaBelle versus Milo Savage from 1963. Mm -hmm. But I do have to say, as part of the update, I heard probably the most disgusting, diseased thing I've heard in my, a long time, because uh, you had said something about it Well, when I was working out of the gym uh -huh. this morning. I actually heard it on uh, oh, Jim Cornette's yeah. podcast. But Vince Russo apparently had ideas for a women's wrestling federation at one point. And I hope that he has a therapist, because if he doesn't, he certainly needs one after listening to this. Um, the ideas he came up with 20 years ago, <clears throat> I don't know what the market... I, th I think he thought the market for it was prepubescent teen guys, or not prepubescent, but... Uh, 17 to 34. I was thinking more along the lines of dumb 13 to maybe 24. Oh, okay, yeah. But uh, actually, I think that the real market for this would be like sex offenders in prison. Oh, yeah. Or mm -hmm. somebody that has some real uh, mental challenges when it comes to relations with women. Because I don't know what your market would be for that or anything else. It was That was bizarro world. Yeah. Every time you thought... Boy, this couldn't possibly get worse. It got a lot worse. And could you imagine? And could you imagine poor Jeff Jarrett sitting there listening to this and not? Could you imagine being a cable executive that they're trying to pitch this to? Oh, I know. We got this great idea for pay per view. What? You want to do what? Yeah. I was gonna say, me and uh, my friend Maddie have been uh, watching a lot of those like to catch a predator type things, mm -hmm. and this is infinitely worse in a lot oh, yeah. of ways than the stuff I was hearing on that. And I was going to say, it's about the same time that that was pitched, that To Catch a Predator was a thing, so... And you could see now why pro wrestling is not anything close to what Dan and I started watching. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was all worked and stuff, but it still came across like a competition. You know? Yeah. Um, now, I don't know what it is. I've always said bad community theater, gymnastics, and some of the worst written material I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. If this was pro wrestling, I never would have went with your Aunt Vicky to a single match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Aunt Vicky loved it. When to it. I thought it was a... Uh, uh, because they hadn't gotten to all the bad details on it. Um, <clears throat> as, it when, as it was, whenever we started listening to it, it just seemed like some cheesy uh, adult film plot and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. Right. Jim Cornette said on his show at one point, he's like, I wouldn't put this on for adults. No. Right. I don't think I'd put it on for human beings. Mm-hmm. And I mean, who? I guess there would have been somebody out there that it would appeal to. Well, yeah, I mean. But I know there's story. three of us in here that would have. I, I would say 90%, 99% of the population would have had no interest in yeah. it. And I don't understand how Vince Russo keeps a job in wrestling. Well, he hasn't had one in quite a long well, time. I, I mean, he does the podcast. and he, But, I mean, he went from WWE. Was, was, he, he went started from WWE uh -huh. under Vince. Yeah. Then he went to WCW, WCW, and we found out he really couldn't write without somebody to rein him in. Mm -hmm. And then they hired him at uh, TNA yeah. uh, when he went to Impact mm -hmm. um, because Jeff Jarrett and him were buddies. Yeah, and Dixie Carter thought he was great, and it just goes to show you how brain damaged she was. Yeah, it killed that company too. Mm -hmm. So, well, to me, it's just another thing where 
It's somebody who doesn't really understand it, mm-hmm. never been involved in it, but was a fan and tried to do something with it, but mm-hmm. didn't get the right people. That's Tony Khan's problem. He doesn't have the right people in a management sense to shape his company. We could maybe we'll maybe we'll give Tony a break this week and maybe we'll well, we'll talk about him on the, the next podcast. I mean Yeah, but you at, know, at some points it's not even fun to pick for one, Tony as a person I think means well mm-hmm. and kudos, I'd like to see AEW become a successful but until he starts running it like a company, cuts about half that roster, yeah, they should be making money. Uh, and if you can believe the reports that uh, a couple of the journalism sites, and, and let's break the uh, fourth wall here and just say, I don't consider myself a journalist. I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's not my expertise. I'm not trying to report on anything. I'll comment on things because we're doing a pro wrestling history podcast, but I consider myself a historian, oh, not and- a journalist. And I still haven't heard back from AEW yet about having... Having Tony on the podcast? I, I'm trying to get I don't Tony know why he wouldn't jump at the chance to be on it. It's because we take the wind out of the sails every chance we get. <laughs> I, I would say hello, Tony, and shake his hand before I started going, what are you going to learn how to manage? Exactly, exactly. Because I wouldn't take him apart over his booking or anything. Yeah. I would just say, until you start managing this company... This is the million dollar studios, it we'd at least make him feel... Yeah. We'd be hospitable. Yeah, give him a piece of pizza and a yeah. soda before we exactly. start taking the wind out of him. Yeah. But, you know, this, the, sh- the shame of it is, as a person... I find Tony a lot less objectionable than some of the stuff Vince has done and yeah. some of the other people. Mm-hmm. And I think his heart is in the right place, but he does not know how to manage. No, because like I don't he's a fan. think he has the personality type to do the things that you have to do to run a tight ship. Yeah. You don't have to be Simon Legree. No. But you have to make hard decisions sometimes. You do. And you have to get the wrong people off the ship, and just as much as you need the right people on the ship. Like you think maybe he should get rid of his EVPs? Yes, or at least take their titles away. I thought he yeah. should, I don't think he should get rid of them as talent, no. but they are not EVPs, and to oh. say they're EVPs is a joke, and they are a big liability mm-hmm. because they invade other people's locker rooms and get in punch-ups that they lose. Yeah, but you are and they an, get their biggest star fire. But you are, yes, but you're an officer of that company, mm-hmm. so your actions... Uh, your actions will draw a higher level of scrutiny from yeah. the court and everybody else because you're an officer of the company. You have a higher standard mm-hmm. of behavior. Exactly. That's what I always used to stress. As a supervisor, or a manager, or a director, you have a higher level of conduct, yeah. not lower. Exactly. And I don't think he has it in him to take away titles for people he likes and stuff like uh-huh. that. In, in the old days, I did. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know. Solomon might have mellowed me too much. I don't know yeah. that if I could be what I once was. Now, if somebody came in and tried to hurt the people that I work with, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I can let the old, old guy out of the cage for that. I'm yeah. going to protect him and make sure nothing happens to him. But to make a day-to-day decisions and hold people's feet to the fire yeah. and let people go that you like, which I had to do, you know, in the past. Mm-hmm. We've all I that, don't huh? think that Tony has that in him. Yeah. So the way you get around that is you hire people that do and you let them do the job. He's not willing to do that either. He's mm-hmm. not willing to give up any power. Yeah. But he doesn't have that personality that you need to have 
to manage an organization and run a tight ship. And right. he keeps way too many people on the payroll. Mm-hmm. That company should be profitable. They just sold out Wembley. I know. They should not be losing money still. Definitely no. not on the wrestling. Exactly. You've got a small niche audience that likes the independent wrestling that's going to continue to watch AEW no matter what they put out. Mm-hmm. But you can have a successful company with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, so that's that he's got. He's got to get down the management. He, The reason his booking... For one thing, is off is because he's got too many people on the payroll. Mm-hmm. So you'll see somebody for a few months, then you don't see him for five months because mm-hmm. you got too many people you're trying to work with in the future. Exactly. And if you really like them, let them go. They'll go back to the independents, mm-hmm. and you could bring them in and pay them per appearance. Exactly. I need to get somebody, and I want to get a good uh, victory for Hook. Yeah. So I bring back somebody that I used to have on contract that I let go, and there were, and I pay them for their appearance. Not, not gender mall. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I thought that was one of the stupid. I mean, that was much ado about nothing. First of all, Tony yeah. violated the first principle of wrestling. Uh-huh. You don't call attention to the competition. Right. Exactly. And then you're having a three-way punch-up verbally, not physically. Uh-huh. Um. I know Bischoff likes to tout his karate black belt, but you know I think those those three guys that would be the first fist fight in history where they they really couldn't hurt each other. <laughs> <laughs> somebody fell on somebody. I say karate black belts aren't really a whole lot to go by though because there's so many McDojos now. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah, with I know. It's really rare that you have an instructor that actually forces them to slow down and learn what they're because. You can get a black belt in a year if you pay enough and go to yeah. those classes. Oh, uh, gotcha. what, what we're talking about is there, and I would never have a program like this. When you walk in the door, I cannot look at you and say that'll be a black belt in four years. Mm-hmm. It may take eight years. You just don't know because it's... Because when, one of the things you have to think about if you're actually running a school is you don't want to make black belts out of people who would become assaulters or... Right. If, you need to check and, like see how their character is and make sure you judge that on the black belt as yeah. well. Yeah, because if you see somebody that's got anger management issues and stuff, uh-huh. do you want them running around with your black belt hurting people and stuff like that? Right, yeah. And I could not live with myself if somebody used what I taught them to hurt somebody. Well, isn't Christ so, supposed to be more for a self-defense than it is a... Uh, hypothetically. Hypothetically. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them don't even focus on... You know, they'll say, well, this is primarily for self-defense. But they don't focus on self-defense. They teach forms, or they teach sparring for competition, or they teach, you know, judo has gotten to be the same way. Well, mm-hmm. you can't say I'm learning this for self-defense if you never practice self-defense and you don't know how to defend yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they don't take the techniques into application, which is a lot of the major issue. Right. Uh, okay. Which is why, like, our, the school we go to, because I yeah. actually do that. But. Yeah. I'm a, a fourth-degree black belt in Taekwondo. I've never punched anybody when I used to work on the street. I always tied them up. I was yeah. always grappling. Mm-hmm. And that's my preferred method because you don't get aggravated assault charges. Right, or... and most people, people that are normally really skilled in grappling are not out there assaulting people. Yeah. So mm-hmm. most people that are thugs are not good grapplers, and you've got a big advantage on them once you take them to the ground because they, yeah. they can't hit. They don't right. know how to fight off their back or on the ground. So it's usually a big advantage to take somebody down. You don't want to do that if there's multiple people because then you're going to get kicked in the head and taken out. Right. Um, However, being able to get behind one of them, get a hook on the throat, yeah. and oh, yeah. find the arm, use them as a shield while you get out, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing is a lot of people can't get a good enough squeeze standing up, Uh huh. but we can. Yeah. So 
we could get somebody and still be standing there looking and uh, I'm not even saying like choking them just get the arm around so you can drag well, them I'm talking about I can, I can do a standing person. arm triangle well enough yeah. I, I've tapped many people out with that yeah it's just about the angle and the squeeze but um, most of the time you can't use a hook or a submission standing up most of the time those are on the ground oh okay there's a handful the guillotine choke you can do standing up Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when you grab it, a lot of times people will take you down off oh, of that. So. Yeah. Um, boy, we got far afield on that. What the heck was I even talking about in the beginning? Uh, yeah. It was Tony and yeah. what he was and wasn't doing, but boy, we went far afield on that Yeah, one. we did. <laughs> say, we, we took a left that, turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> part of that was, like, I, I know I had brought up the McDojo thing and you were explaining that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then that, um, that's what we're talking about with the McDojo. So I can't look at somebody when they walk in the door and know they'll be a black belt. Oh, yeah. But there are schools out there that will sign a contract with you and you will be a black belt in four years. Now, you may not deserve it, but you'll be a black belt in four years. Uh, I remember what brought that up. The dude that was proud of his black belt. And I'm like, yeah, he probably just got it in a McDojo. Yeah. Most people don't go around, you know, waving it under their face and stuff. I was going to say, I've always thought that, you know, guys yeah. kept that kind of close to the chest, you know, hey. Because if you start banding and branding it about or whatever, like, people are going to see that as like, oh, hey, if I beat this guy up, I'll look more tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was always hard for them because everybody <clears throat> wanted to beat them because they were my kids. And my nieces and nephews went through the same thing. Yeah. But you know what's funny? Nobody ever tried to swing at me. I just remember that one guy who was uh, because one of my friends is high-functioning autistic uh, when I was in church. Went up, touched this kid who was not on the best terms with me or him. Mm -hmm. And he goes, touch me again, see what happens. I turn around, I look him dead in the eye and go, threaten him again, see what happens. He turns around and starts walking away like, I ain't afraid of you. And I'm like, yeah, that's why you're walking away. Exactly. Those guys that always, oh, come on, come at me, bro. Meet you outside. Come on, come on. Do something, do something, do something. Yeah. Yeah. And they're walking away. It's like, you're a big coward is what you are. Yeah. Because if you were man enough to do something, you would have done it. Already. It's funny because I'll tell people, you know, I have had very few fights because most people don't try me. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, But I think the reason people don't try me is they know that I will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you come and you start threatening people, you know, mess with people I care about, I will do what I need to do to protect them. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think people understand that. That's why nobody ever tries me. Mm-hmm. I was arguing poetry with Grandpa one year. So <laughs> he, uh, I'd been taking American Lit, and uh-huh. I, one of my favorite uh, poets is Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. And I said, tell all the truth, but tell it slant which is her poem. Yeah. And the last line is, the truth must dazzle gradually or mm-hmm. every person be blind. It's 19th century, so it was mad, but I change it and yeah. modernize it today. Basically, if you can, if you, you can. You, you, you got <laughs> People can't handle the truth, so you got to ease into the whole truth thing with them. Yeah. And so I was quoted that to Grandpa, uh-huh. and Grandpa was like, how could you like Emily Dickinson? I said, she's one of my favorite poets. I mm-hmm. said, my life closed twice before it's closed. Now, Longfellow's my favorite. Rainy Day will always be my favorite poem. But mm-hmm. I like, uh, my favorite American poem probably is, or poet, it probably is Emily Dickinson overall. Mm-hmm. He's like, how could you like Emily Dickinson? I said, I'm stupid. He said, 
I, well, I like Walt Whitman. I'm like, how could you like Walt Whitman? I said, he writes one poem about Lincoln's assassin or Lincoln's funeral procession, and he's the second coming of Geoffrey Chaucer. So my cousin's husband's sitting over there. He goes, are you two arguing about poetry? And I looked over at him in the eye. He goes, I'm not saying that. And I said, yeah, I bet you're not. Just like that time he told you not to wear a pink shirt, huh? No, that was Grandpa. Oh, Grandpa. Yeah, Grandpa would get away with that. Yeah. His parting shot to me was, I have seven granddaughters, I don't need an eighth. Man, he would have a stroke these days because straight guys wear hot pink shirts yeah, now. Yeah. Well, I was, Trey, I was straight and I was wearing pink, but I think all of that is so overblown. He was from yeah. the old mm-hmm. school and the older generation. Yeah, I know. And um, I still wouldn't have given her any mouth about it, even today, because yeah. of who he was. But you can wear what you want. You can be... You could do what you want, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but yeah, that was his parting shot to me when I wore the pink shirt to Aunt Tracy's wedding. <laughs> but you know, I think that all of us at one point in time had that pale pink. Well, mine was a pale pink Oxford yeah, shirt. That's that what I, mine was. Yeah, and, and, and I, I wore it to. Uh, I wore it with my suit to yeah. uh, Tracy's wedding, and he looked over at me. What do you got on? I'm like, my shirt. Mm-hmm. He goes, little boys wear blue and little girls wear pink and never the twain shall meet. So he would have struggled a little bit in the modern era. <laughs> yeah. And so I said, Grandpa, that's no big deal. And that's what his parting shot to me was, I have seven granddaughters, I don't need an eighth. Yeah. So, but, you know, that he was a person of his time, and thank God times change, you know. I'll tell you what, though. I think one of the my favorite stories about your grandpa is when we was, before we went fishing that day, and he's like, all right, we stop at an all-you-can-eat restaurant. So he's got Uncle da- Uncle Danny. Well, we stop at the all-you-can-eat buffet in Otto on our way down to the lake. Yeah. And he thinks he's going to make a killing because Danny's there. He goes, I'm getting my money's worth today. Yep. He said, I'm going to get my money's worth today. I got Danny with me here. He said, they're going to lose money. Because I was 18 and Dan was 15. Yeah. He still ate. Uh, I out ate. He still ate, out ate me. <laughs> Grandpa's like, who on earth? Because, I, I don't know, I was close to, what was it, maybe 180 at the time? Yeah. Were you lifting weights at the time, though? Too? Yes. Yeah, that would yeah, be why I was you're 18, like recovering from all And I had, a, I had an appetite like nobody's business. But I could eat, out, out, uh, eat Uncle Danny all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> Grandpa would come out there and Grandpa's like, who would have thought you could out eat Dan? <laughs> but he goes, I got my buddy's worth. I'm happy. <clears throat> I come back. I've got like some eggs and some bacon, some toast on a plate. Here comes Ken. He comes around the corner. He's got like a pound of bacon on his plate. <laughs> I was working out back in the day. And that's what's funny now is uh, looking at that would make me sick to my stomach. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't eat fatty foods. So yeah. 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 And I, I've had people bring, you know, they'll bring out those plates when you go to the restaurant. I'm like, you might as well bring me a box now because I can tell you yeah. I'm not finishing that. Yeah, oh, like getting an apple. But when I was in my teens and 20s foods. and I was working out hard, I could put away four 4,000 calories easy. Mm-hmm. And I was still skinny as a freaking yeah. rail. My metabolism slowed down. About 20 or 21, because I have terrible genetics. Yeah. The whole reason I started working out is I looked around at my family, and I saw most people were morbidly obese, and I'm like, oh, I, I need to get on top of this, because otherwise I'm going to have long-term health problems, you know, down yeah. the road. Yeah. But are we ever going to finish? Do we finish the McDojo thing? 
I think so, yeah. You guys are rambling worse than I am today. (laughs) All right, well, anyway, so let's get back on track. We talked on social things. I hope we didn't offend anybody. This is just a... Yeah, that was literally just him addressing the old-timey way that my grandpa thought of things. You're... That was, Wait, no, that was, that was your great great grandpa. Oh, okay, that was your. No, grandpa. that was your great grandpa. Yeah, I was gonna say it's his great grandpa. Yeah, it was your great grandpa. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't uh, Grandpa Ernie. No, where the heck were we at? Well, you were talking about those three guys were the only ones who could get into a punch up and not hurt each other. Yeah, they they yeah. you know they couldn't hurt, but it was just ridiculous. They arguing over stuff. It was Eric Bischoff who used to run WCW. Which, actually, I see a lot of parallels between WCW and AEW. Mm-hmm. Storylines that start, stop. You never see what the end result was. Yeah. Thing. The management was all kind of messed up. Mm-hmm. And then Dave Meltzer had to jump in there, who at one time was the most respected journalist yep. in wrestling. And I still respect him. And almost everything he's t- telling you is true. He's just a fan of the independent style wrestling, mm-hmm. and he's a big defender for AEW. So he's gone from being more of a impartial source to you know he's always going to take the side of AEW most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, but they, you know, Dave in his youth, he might have been able to whip both of them, but Dave now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's been doing the Wrestling Observer for how long? No, oh, yeah. I mean, he's he's got to be in his early sixties. I mean, because that's that was that was around when me and you were. Yeah. I mean, it was PWI. That was the best uh, wrestling magazine out there. Then the Observer, and yeah, of course, you had a lot of you know. Well, you know what? We've gone about twenty-five minutes, and these poor people haven't heard a lick of history yet. All so right, well, go ahead. Let's get. Let's under. jump into the main content for today, so you won't think you <laughs> wasted your time coming here. Listen to us <coughs> go all far. You you know you might be worse than Caleb when it comes to taking us off topic. He's pretty bad. <coughs> At least you're not swearing, and I ain't gonna have to edit this fifteen times. <laughs> so no, because I understand your pain. I have to censor Caleb and some of my friends. Oh so, yeah. Um, the topic I had chose was because uh, one of our listeners, Shannon, had wrote. Uh, he's an MMA fan, as I have been, although I'm falling out of love with the current UFC. And he had talked about talking about the history of MMA. Well, the history of early MMA was just a history of mixed style bouts and you know what's better. And in general, there's an old adage that when the wrestler and a boxer meet in a mixed style bout, once the wrestler gets the hands on the boxer, the fight is pretty much over. And that's borne out a lot of times in history. In modern times, James Lights Out Tony went into the UFC and went against Randy Couture, who's an Olympic uh, Greco-Roman wrestler. Yeah. And when Couture took him down like 10 seconds in and just held him down until he submitted him. Uh, it wasn't even close. But all fights start on their feet, and the boxer does have a chance in that early going. And I'm going to talk about one after this where the boxer actually did get the best of the, and it wasn't a wrestler, it was a jiu-jitsu practitioner. So on November 19th, 1935, they booked a mixed styles bout in St. Louis between Ray Steele, who was a noted hooker, meaning very skilled submission wrestler. Yeah. You and I would be hookers. 
Yeah, you're thinking of the. <laughs> no, just just the, I'm not. I know what you're talking about. Because submissions are hooks. But yes, everybody <laughs> hears that term and thinks ladies of the evening, which we would fail miserably at. But no, it's, it's a skilled submission wrestler. I, I, a shooter is I'm a skilled go wrestler. Booth over here. <laughs> yeah. A shooter is a skilled wrestler. Yeah. You know, somebody who's real good at judo stand up or just wrestling. Right. But the hooker was the one that could submit people with a hook. Right. You you would hook someone when you would be wrestling them. If they were getting better of you in the carnivals, you would hook them and hurt them with a sub. Yeah. So, Steele was a, a noted hooker, and uh, we'll give you guys a second to quit laughing, and then <laughs> we'll go on. But the Missouri State Athletic Commission, which we did have, I think we still have it, it's just not very active. Yeah created special rules for this match. So the commissioners ruled that the bout would consist of three-minute rounds like a boxing match. <clears throat> and uh, Levinsky was, could punch even if he was on the mat because he was the boxer. Yeah, He did have to wear gloves, I think. Steele could not butt, gouge, or pull Levinsky's hair, which you can't do in a normal wrestling match either, so I don't know why they felt like they had to put that out there. To win, Steele would pin Levinsky to the mat for 10 seconds or make him quit. And when they say pin, they don't mean hold his shoulders down to the mat for 10 seconds. They're talking about like judo, hold him down with back exposure for 10. Yeah. Because in judo, they hold him down for 25 seconds for a Yeah, and if you're thrown and get a half point, it's 20 seconds. Oh, okay. Uh, Levinsky could, or the way they could win was what I just said. Steele would pin him for 10 seconds or make him quit. Levinsky could knock Steele out, or the referee could stop the contest for a time. Boy, I can't speak for anything today. I've screwed up the intro. Now I'm... <clears throat> so, they were about evenly matched physically. Uh, <clears throat> Levinsky was 5'11", Steele was 6' tall, and they both weighed about 205. However, Levinsky was only 25 years old, Steele was 35. So you would think that that was a advantage for Levinsky, but it didn't help him too much. Um, so what happened was what usually happens in a mixed style bout. They start the match, and oh, and I forget to say this was in the St. Louis Arena, in front of eleven thousand two hundred sixty-two fans, which was a huge house mm -hmm. back in those days. Yeah. Normally, it's St. Louis, even in the 80s, you could get a normal crowd of like 9,000 yeah. every three weeks on Friday. And then uh, for the big cards, which was once or twice a year, you might get 15,000 in the Checker Dome, or the arena as it was called at the time. And, as Dan pointed out to me, this St. Louis arena was what became the Checker Dome. Mm -hmm. So this was the one that wasn't too far from Dogtown. So... The referee is a guy named Walter Heisner, who I hadn't heard of before. Usually the referee, most of the time, was um, for wrestling. Maybe they got a boxing referee for this one. Who knows? Most of the... Uh, <coughs> uh, George Peptiste, who was a middleweight wrestling champion in pro wrestling in like the 1890s, was the referee. Yeah. So they start out, and Levinsky comes out of his corner and hits Steele with a left hook to the head. But he missed the right cross, and Steele secured a waist hold and slid to Levinsky's back. Well, Levinsky, 
realizes he's in dire trouble, so he grabs onto the top rope with both hands, and he is holding onto that thing like a python. He will not let go of that top rope. And Steele is trying to jerk him off the rope and everything, mm-hmm. but Levinsky's holding onto that top rope for his, like his life depends on it. So Heisner finally broke him and made him restart. So when they restarted, Levinsky scored with a right cross left hook combination, and Steele staggered for about a second. But then Steele just ran into him, picked him up with a body lock, and slammed him into the mat and just held him with a back exposure for 10 seconds. So the entire length of the match was 35 seconds. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It, it, there wasn't much to it. FBI statistic right there. Mm-hmm. So. Again, this match played out like many of the wrestler versus boxer contests. However, the fans were not that upset because they had had a big card before it. Mm-hmm. They had seen four wrestling matches and three boxing fights. Oh, and, okay. Um, it must have been a mostly wrestling crowd because they weren't really happy during the boxing, but they were cheering wildly during the wrestling. So it must yeah. have been mostly wrestling fans. Yeah. So the fans paid between forty cents and two fifty, and the gate was eleven thousand one hundred three, which was a great gate for nineteen thirty five. And so uh, Walter Smith of the St. Louis Star Times interviewed him afterwards, and Levinsky, who was a great orator, obviously, the Smith asked him what he thought of Steele, and Levinsky replied, "Strong." <laughs> <laughs> a man of few words, wasn't yeah. he? <laughs> A real whiz <clears throat> repartee. And so then Smith asked Le- or, uh, Steele, because <clears throat> he had a red mark above his right eye from one of the left hooks. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he said, had he been hurt? And Steele said, nah, just another day at the office for Ray Steele. <laughs> so, people referring to them in the third person occurred in the 1930s, apparently. And that was pretty typical of what would happen when you saw it when Hoist got a hold of those guys in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, the grappler has the advantage. That's what I've always tried to do is take people down in time and not. Yeah. Because when How, you get too close, it completely eats up any momentum that they can generate. Exactly. From strikes. Mm. But you do start standing up. Yeah. So in 19... Go ahead. That's so. I I want to say it was nineteen thirteen, but it could have been nineteen. No. It was late nineteen oh nine or nineteen ten, nineteen eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big Sam McVeigh, who was one of the best boxers in the world, he is in Paris because he also happens to be African American, and African American boxers were frozen out of competing for the World Heavyweight Championship, even though Jack Johnson, another African-American fighter, held it. So Mm -hmm. the best fighters at that time were African-American, but they were stuck fighting each other for what was called at the time the Colored Heavyweight Championship of the World. Oh, okay. So, yeah, believe me. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I always always forget it's only been 70 years since we've gotten past segregation, so. It's not even that. Uh, Trey, I still remember racial slurs and everything else Mm -hmm. in the 80s. I'm just talking about legally segregation was only 70 years. Yeah, and it probably went on, even though it was illegal, it probably went on longer than that. Yeah, Yeah. sure it did. But... um, so McVeigh, he actually went to Paris 
because in general, African Americans were treated better in France than they were here in the United States. And so he fought over there for a few years. And he was a big star. And one of the people he ended up fighting is they wanted to get a boxer to fight one of these jujitsu guys. And the guy's name was Tano Matsuda. Although I believe he was actually an Englishman who was a student of Yukio Tani, who was the uh, jujitsu black belt in England before Taro Mayaki came through. And then Mayaki came to the United States. Mayaki ended up his career as a pro wrestler in the like 20s and 30s. But he, he fought a lot of challenge matches, including one against Ad Santel. Maybe I'll tell that story today, too. So you'll get your history uh, worth if you sat here and put up with listening to our nonsense. for. The oh, it's story time minutes. with Ken Zimmerman. There you go. <laughs> At least he was generally on topic. We talked about we did. dojos and like how those are just right. kind of a play to the martial arts world. and Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying it wasn't applicable, but as historians' minds tend to wander anyway. Yeah. So I tend to go through the fields and the valleys anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, he fights this guy named Tano Matsuda. And unlike most of the other times where the jiu-jitsu guy gets hold of the boxer and takes him down, Sam McVeigh had a huge right hand, and he, he could knock anybody out with it. You did not want to get hit with his right hand. And so the story goes, I can't find any evidence of it, so I did not put it in the blog post I wrote about this match, or bout. But apparently Sam Lankford, who was another great African-American boxer and a friend of McVeigh's, although they fought several times as well, told him, Sambo, if you go in there and you fight this guy and he's going to grab you and put you in some crazy hold you've never seen before... That'll be kind of embarrassing for you. It'll hurt you in Paris because this match was in Paris. So apparently Sam McVeigh was so wound up, as soon as they rang the bell, he'd come out and just one right hand. (laughs) (laughs) And knock this guy colder than a wedge. And when he landed on the ground, he landed on the ground in a heap. Well, he'd come down and he punched him again. And before the referee could finally get in there, but they said the second time he punched him, he kind of brought the guy back around. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy's crumpled on the mat in a a heap, you know. Uh, Um, I think his legs and the rest of his body didn't know what had happened to his head. (laughs) It's like that one I showed you where Tyrone Spong was in the ring and that guy had caught him and Uh dazed him for a second. Uh And he came in thinking he was going to finish Tyrone Spong off and Tyrone Spong hit him with that right hand and the guy's body, you just saw the guy's body literally shut down. Yeah. Taco Bell dingus hits that. Yeah. He was not completely (laughs) out when he hit. He kind of rolled over and then just sat in the corner like, I'm not getting back out there and getting anything (laughs) like that. I think that's what happened to this guy. He got knocked out, got knocked back awake. It was like, what happened? But I don't want no more of that guy. Right. So Just got hit by a train. <laughs> and Sam McVeigh is one of the few boxers that does have a win over the uh, grappler, the yeah. jiu-jitsu guy. Now, this was probably not a very talented jiu-jitsu guy. But right. if I was Yuki Otani or Taro Mayaki, I would not have wanted to go into the ring with Sam McVeigh. Mm-hmm. When you looked at Sam McVeigh... This man looked like a warrior. You would not have wanted to. So even if you block, that's going to still stay. Because he mm-hmm. was probably six foot and 190, which is a big heavyweight for that era. Yeah. Most heavyweights were not over 200 pounds. And right. that, uh, that, that didn't start happening 
until you get into the 20s and the 30s. Yeah. Uh, even in boxing, a lot of the best heavyweights were still between 190 and 202. Yeah. But McVeigh uh, was big and muscular and hit like a truck. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't have wanted to be Mayaki and then try my luck with him. But Mayaki, he fought lots of challenge matches over the years. He went to England and actually beat Yuki Otani in a challenge match. They were both jiu-jitsu guys, but then they started co- collaborating together. And a lot of the judo black belts that came from Japan were still calling themselves jiu-jitsu black belts at the time. Hmm. So you really yeah. got to look back at their... And I thought Mayaki was a judo black belt. Mayaki actually was a jiu-jitsu black belt under one of Jigaro uh, Kano's teachers. Because Kano formed judo out of two styles of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And the, the, the one that begins with an S, Mayaki was a student of that instructor who was also uh, Kano's instructor. Or Kano. It's Jigaro Kano, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're so. you're always correct in my pronunciation. Yeah, of everything. I think because assume like there all there's always some controversy about the way I say things. <laughs> Fair enough, whatever. <laughs> so getting back to where I was at, uh, Mayaki beat Tano or Yukio Tani, and then he wrestles a number of challenge matches in England against some of the wrestlers. Well, then he comes to the United States to do the same thing. And in 1916, he has a wrestling match with Ad Santel, who is one of the most dangerous hookers, because like Lewis, he had a mean streak. Uh-huh. Um, there were hookers out there that just hurt people, and George Tragos was one, mm-hmm. Ad Santel was one, and Evan Lewis was one. Even though... Uh, Ed Strangler Lewis was a very good uh, hooker. He very seldom hooked people. Yeah. You know, he generally, he would just, if he got mad and he started shooting on somebody, he punched him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> he did, literally, punch him in the face. But uh, he didn't hurt people, whereas these guys would cripple people with a hook. Yeah. Well, Santel did not uh, hook Mayaki. He slammed him, kind of got him an almost arm triangle standing, and slammed him off of that and knocked him unconscious. However, that's only half of the story. So I had heard that story forever and a day that Ad Santel knocked Mayaki out with this slam, which he did. Yeah. But what you don't know is they actually, that was the second fall. The first fall was under Japanese rules with both guys wearing the gi top, and Mayaki actually won that fall after 30 minutes where he got knocked out in 16 seconds was the second fall where they were just doing catch wrestling they weren't wearing the gi tops and he he got him in that kind of hook around the head and slammed him Mm -hmm. on the back of his head knocked him out but uh santel definitely won that but it it wasn't this one-sided destruction yeah. And that's one of the real challenges when you're researching wrestling. It's what I found with this Lewis book and that. There is so much false information put out there, and a lot of times it's put out there by the wrestlers and their managers. It's very yeah. hard to separate fact from fiction. So you've really got to dig to separate the two. Yeah. 
It's like a lot of the mythos revolving the origins of different martial arts. Yes, the origin stories around martial arts, they, they, those could make some of the wrestling <clears throat> stories pale in comparison. Uh, I remember the one for a screamo was like this one guy had to like dive off a cliff, swim through shark infested water to go into a cave to train with this old master. And I'm like, there's no way in hell. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, full of it. it's just absolutely some of the most preposterous stories. And the story of the martial art itself most of the time would be impressive enough, but they can't just be satisfied with that. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. I killed the guy with my pinky finger. No, you didn't. <laughs> it's like all the guys that used to tell me, well, if they come up, I'll just kick them in the groin. It's like, you know, for years I've been looking for all those guys that don't have any eyes or groins. Uh-huh. Because I hear that's what everybody's going to do, but I've never seen all those guys that are, you know, missing an eye or don't. I'll say, how many people have you arrested over the years? And none of them? Yeah, none of them. So, and all of them, I never hurt anybody, and nobody ever hurt me. And you know why? Because I took them down and tied them up. Right. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know what to do, so they <laughs> gave up. Well, I mean, most of the guys you were tackling down were mainly hood rats. So it's <laughs> yeah, but you know, some guys have been fighting their whole life. Yeah. But they can't fight like that. They don't know how to. Well, let me let me. Uh, it's more like an animal with instincts rather than... Let, let me throw that... Uh, uh, I was going to ask you this anyway about... Um, you remember a street fighter coming into the uh, mixed martial arts? Uh, Kimbo Slice. Yes. Who was uh, a big thug who would, you know, basically f- do a street fight for $10,000. Right. But then but when, when he came to the MMA... He got his rear end handed to him. Because he don't know how to grapple. Exactly. He would get, he would get taken down <clears throat> because he didn't know how to grapple. No, that's but I mean, the one thing about like... Kimbo Slice that people don't... Yes, he was a big, muscular guy. Mm-hmm. But I thought he had better boxing skills. Who was that big, huge guy? He ended up going into wrestling. He was a, a force of nature in K1 for a few years because he was like 360 pounds. He looked like the Incredible Hulk. Good and Lord. he could knock you stiff... If, in about 30 seconds, but yeah. if you could weather that first 30 seconds for a minute, uh-huh. he was so blown up that you could then just knock him out pretty easy, and guys did start beating him. Uh-huh. Bob Sapp. eats so much yeah. oxygen. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of the guys that are really thickly muscled in combat sports, they don't have any cardio, and they can't go very long. Yeah. Well, like uh, Naida, Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. He'd, he'd do his ring interest, but, and then he was spent. Well, and that was Kimbo Slice's problem. Now, he got better uh-huh. because he got MMA training. But the reason he lost all those fights initially was because he didn't know how to grapple. He'd get taken down. He'd, yeah. If he hits you, he could knock you out. But yeah. you'd get taken down, he couldn't do anything with the guys that could wrestle. Mm-hmm. And he would blow up if it went too long because he was a big, muscular guy. Yeah. His cardio did get better as he went along. Uh-huh. But yeah, the, the misnomer about him is people just think he was just some thug street fighter. Mm-hmm. But he was actually a pretty skilled boxer doing those street fights. Okay. Now, would I have ever let him in MMA? No. And here's why. Because you went for so long trying to make MMA look like a respectable sport. Mm-hmm. And then you bring a guy in who is an... Inter- the reason he's popular is because he's been on the internet having these illegal fights. Because mm-hmm. those fights were illegal. Oh, yes, they were. And having illegal street fights. And, yeah, he made a lot of money doing it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like bringing somebody in that you know pulled a gambling scheme on somebody, you know, took a dive or whatever. Yeah. People don't take dives anymore. They fix the 
referees, but just say you took a dive. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's going to cast a aspersion and a pall over everything you're trying to do because they're like, well, if they're really trying to be a legitimate sport, why would they bring in this person that did a gambling scheme? Right. That's not what Kimbo Slice was doing, but Kimbo Slice was having underground illegal street fights. Yeah. For big money, I would have never brought him in. I got gotcha. you to the UFC because he actually won a few fights. Mm-hmm. You know, and to me, that also makes it look like, well, if you got some guy that's just doing, again, he had better skills than some people gave him credit for. Yeah, he was a pretty good boxer, but you're bringing somebody in. So what is every schlub out there that's had a couple of street fights? Could he then fight flyweight in UFC? Right. Yeah. No. I, I wouldn't have done it, but you know that's on them. They yeah. that's the decision Dana White made. Um, Dana, as an executive, I don't think he's great. Mm-hmm. Here's what I he does take charge. He he is the antithesis of Tony Khan. Mm-hmm. He will make sure that, but he's also had personal grudges with. You know, his heavyweight champion left because him and heavyweight champion could get along. Yeah, Francis and Ganu. And he says things that I think are a liability if you have a company. Mm-hmm. But he is also the visionary that made UFC what it is today. UFC would not be what it is to, today without Dana. But like yeah. a lot of people, like Vince, he is going to have a mixed legacy. Yeah. All right. So now, we do you remember Kimbo Slice? Not really. I don't. I don't think you ever watched any of the fights that he had. Uh, probably, like, I remember watching the first few of them, and then I watched a lot during the Chuck Liddell era, and then I kind of just fell off after that. <clears throat> well, that's a lot of people now. Yeah. A lot of people are starting to fall off. Because a lot of the champions are just not likable. Yeah. Um, so I covered Mayaki and Santel. I covered mm-hmm. Big Sam McVeigh and Matsuda. Mm-hmm. And I covered the main one I wanted to cover was Levinsky and... Ray Steele. Yeah. Uh, Ray Steele is interesting. So, Lewis had one of his, you know, he had several shoot contests to settle promotional wars. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a war going on, and Londis was with one faction, and Lewis was with the other faction. Mm -hmm. So, they wanted to set up a shoot contest. Well, you know, Londis was not going to get in a ring with... Uh, Strangler Lewis in a shoot contest. Right. When they finally wrestled each other in 1934 and they drew that first $30,000 house they had drawn since Gotch Hackenschmidt mm-hmm. in 1911, Mott and Lewis had to put up $50,000 to guarantee <sighs> that Lewis would not shoot on Londis <laughs> before Londis would get yeah. in the ring with him. And Londis, Londis was a hooker. He had learned a carnival but there's levels to it, like everything else. He was not near on the level. He wasn't on the level of Pesek or Stecker, yeah. right. much less Lewis. And so Londis would never get into the ring with Lewis when he was supposed to win unless Lewis promised not to shoot on him. And he always had to put money up. Well, this was a huge thing where Lewis was going to put Londis over so Londis, everybody would recognize Londis as the world champion. Mm-hmm. But before Linus would ever get in the ring with him, because it was going to be a huge card, and you know Lewis was going to get a big payoff, they had to put fifty thousand dollars with a promoter that Linus trusted to guarantee that Lewis would not shoot on Linus. Wow! 
So he's not going to get in there, but Ray Steele is Londis' policeman. Mm-hmm. So Ray Steele, or Londis puts Ray Steele up to going into the match with Lewis. Well, Lewis liked Ray Steele. Mm-hmm. And when Ray Steele gets in the ring, Ray Steele usually wore wrestling boots, but mm-hmm. he was barefoot, which is what Strangler Lewis always was. Yeah. And we won't say what Lewis always called Londis because it's a borderline racial slur mm-hmm. on his Greek heritage. But Lewis hated Londis with a passion. And he said the name he always called him, said, gave you bad advice, Ray, because he liked Ray Steele. Yeah. He said, your feet are going to get torn up on this mat because mm-hmm. Lewis's feet, because he always wrestled barefoot, yeah. were like leather on the soles of his feet. Yeah. Steals were not so they are, and and most contests are boring, but particularly amongst evenly matched people. So they're just pushing each other ring, yeah, around the ring for like twenty minutes. And Steel's feet are all getting torn up. He's bleeding from the soles of his feet. Mm-hmm. And Lewis said, "I told you, Ray." He said, "Do you want to end this?" And Ray said, "Yeah, I can't beat you, Ed." He said, "Go ahead and punch me." And so. Steel punches him, which was an automatic disqualification back in that day. You could not punch somebody in a wrestling match. Right. But the referee, knowing that they're wrestling to settle this feud, doesn't disqualify Steel for punching <laughs> Lewis. So Lewis gets a hold of the freaking referee and says, He's going to punch me again. Now DQ him. We've already agreed that this is how the match is going to end. Uh-huh. I don't want him punching me in the face a third time. <laughs> So Steele punches him again. The match is a DQ. Well, both factions have people outside the ring. And they think that there's just been a double cross, that Ray Steele has gone across to Lewis's side, even though Steele just said, I can't beat you, Ed, and his feet were all bleeding that. Londis knew that Steele wasn't double-crossing him. He knew it was just that literally he was feet he couldn't continue. Yeah. So... But the wrestlers around the ringside don't know that. So they start getting into a punch-up out on the ringside. <laughs> and Jack Curley, who at this time was in his 50s or early 60s in his wheelchair bound, is sitting at ringside. And he's part of the Lewis contingent. Well, one of the wrestlers <laughs> who's part of Londa's contingent punches Jack Curley sitting in his wheelchair at ringside. <laughs> And the four New York City police officers that were not too far away would not look upon this very kindly that he's punching this elderly guy in a wheelchair. So they go over, night sticks out, ready to take this guy and arrest him after they probably beat him about the head and shoulder for a few minutes with the uh, night sticks. When, because Curly has figured out what's going on, he's been around the wrestling business forever. He knows that Steele and Lewis agreed that this was the way the match was going to end because he couldn't beat Lewis, so Lewis was going to win. <laughs> and he stops the policeman from arresting the guy. He's like, no, 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 he was just confused. Because everybody was kind of confused about what went on. Yeah. And Linus and Steele are yelling to their group on the outside, stop, stop, stop. So they finally get everybody broke up. <laughs> Curly doesn't let him arrest the dumb young wrestler who just punched him. And that that would settle the promotional war. But yeah, the referee was like, oh, I don't want to DQ him because this is the settled approach where he's like, for crying out loud, this is how we're ending it. I don't I don't want him punching me a third time. <laughs> but Steele was a, a heck of a, a, a hooker and he was in 
the same class as Lewis and Pesic and Stecker, Mont, you know, the best hookers in that era. Mm-hmm. Tragically, he died at only 49 years of age. He was born in 1900 in Germany. And he was real good friends with uh, Luthez and that. But he had a heart attack at 49 oh, in gosh. 1950 and he died. Yeah. But uh, one of the real legitimate tough guys, he served as Londis' policeman. Mm-hmm. So what would happen was uh, the policeman would be beaten by the champion. So if he was, Ray Steele was Londis' policeman, he would lose to Londis early on, but then they would form a partnership. And there was a reason for that. If you had a legitimate wrestler show up, like a Lewis, who wanted to take on Londis, that person would have to beat Steele first. Because if you couldn't beat Steele, who the champion had beat, what makes you think you could wrestle a champion? Yeah. And Steele would hurt whoever it was that wanted to legitimately shoot on Londis. Lewis did the same thing. for They always had what they would call the policeman. Yeah. And that carried on even into the 60s and 70s. Harley Race, in effect, played the part of Rick, Fair, Rick Flair's policeman when they were in Japan. Um, they sent Harley with Flair the first time he went to Japan. Yeah. Because a lot of the guys in Japan were shooters and hookers, and they didn't want somebody to shoot on Flair, who was a performer, and take the title from him. <clears throat> so they sent Harley with him, and Harley would sit at ringside every time. And because when Flair <clears throat> is sitting on the plane, Harley comes in. He goes, Harley, you're going to Japan? He goes, yeah. Now, well, yeah. That's how Harley <laughs> started. And... He's like, well, why are they sending you to Japan? He said, or why are you going to Japan? He goes, to keep them from taking the belt off of you. And so he's sitting ringside one night, and Jumbo Saruta body slams, or he suplexes Flair. And this guy was a shooter, and he could suplex pretty hard. So they go to the back, and Harley said, watch this. He walks up to Saruta, who's sitting in a chair, and slaps him right across the face. And Saruta stands up and bows to Harley Race because that's how much respect they have for Harley Race in Japan. And he told Saruta, if you suplex my friend again when he doesn't call for it, you and I are going to settle this here in the back. Yeah. He bowed to Harley again, and that was the end of it. But uh, that's why Harley went there is to make sure nobody took any liberties with Flair. Mm-hmm. So the, the policeman existed into the 70s and 80s. Different forms, but there was you'd hear, oh, that's that, that's that champion's policeman, and that's the function they served. Yeah. So I think the only thing we got left to do is to talk about the Judo Gene LaBelle Milo Savage match. What exists of it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we watched the clip that's like a minute fifty-six seconds long, and that was actually four rounds. It was the fourth round where he threw him with the Tayatoshi, and then got the choke on him. He had thrown him once or twice, but he spent the first couple rounds just kind of staying away from getting punched. Yeah. And uh, Gene LaBelle could not throw any punches in that match, even though he's got his hands up and fists. He's just doing that to try to protect his head. He had boxed <clears throat> Sugar Ray Robinson, you know, got his butt kicked, but he had boxed with Sugar Ray Robinson because his mom, Eileen Eaton, ran uh, the boxing promotion in Southern California. Originally... 
Eileen Eaton was in the office of Mary Kelly, who was Gene LaBelle and Mike LaBelle's stepfather. And he was the wrestling and boxing promoter in Los Angeles for years. I think he replaced uh, Carnation Ludero. Well, when Cal Eaton died, Eileen Eaton took over the boxing, and Mike LaBelle, her son, took over the wrestling. And Judo Gene was the wrestler. Mike always worked in the office. And uh, Gene was, not only had he learned shooting and hooking from Strangler Lewis when he was like seven or eight years old, he also had boxed a little bit, and he was a judo black belt. He was one of the first American judo champions in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, Mr. Martial Arts, what did you think of that? I mean, there was really only just the falls that was being shown. Um, as a whole, I think uh, it shows just how quickly things can kind of change. Because, again, you said the first couple rounds he was just kind of trying to keep... He was trying to zone the striker so he didn't end up getting uh, decked in the schnoz early on. But the second he got that, like, it was pretty much almost instantaneous. He just fell over on collapsing the guy pretty much. Or the guy pretty much just collapsed. There wasn't really a whole lot he could do. No. no well, he had he had taken that karate gi, which you know how hard it is to throw somebody with yeah. a karate gi. It's much easier with judo gi. But he had also put Vaseline all over it. So it took yeah, about a while to get a hold of it. as well. But once he threw him in that Tayatoshi, Gene fell on him on purpose. Yeah. So in judo, you could throw somebody and then not go down with them and mm -hmm. really take it off of them. We used to do <clears> that in training all the time. You would try not to hurt the person you were working with. Right. But if you want to hurt somebody or you want to sub them, you follow them down and land on top of them because it takes the air out of them and it makes it easier to sub them, which is what yeah. Gene LaBelle did in that game. Uh, and with some throws, you're also set up better for certain submissions if you just fall yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can get certain arm bars or certain chokes because yeah. you kind of fall in the position to put them in. Mm -hmm. And uh, judo is a lot of upper body control. They don't even let you grab the leg anymore. Uh, yeah, but now he did it back in the day. About, as we've talked about, that's just a lot of restrictive Nonsense. stuff to keep wrestling from doing. If you actually yeah. allow that stuff, uh, judo is a lot more versatile as an art. They should allow it. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about, oh, wrestlers are going to come in and dominate. Jiu-Jitsu players are going to come in and dominate. Not if you're really good at judo, they're not. Get used to the double leg takedowns and learn to counter it. That's yeah. how you stop the wrestlers mm -hmm. from coming in. Yeah. Changing the rules like that is like admitting your sport or and, your martial arts. And why did I tell our guys the year they went to the judo tournament and all the jiu-jitsu guys showed up? Don't go down on the ground with them. Yeah. Stay standing. And the rules of judo favor you staying standing, so stay standing. Huh. Yeah. yeah. That match is just one of those, like one of the early examples of when it comes to the whole striker versus grappler argument. It's really just about who, how you can control, how you can make use of your abilities, and how well you can control the environment you're in. Yeah. Because the hard part with striking is trying to actually land the hits. But with grappling, you have to make sure you get close, which can be incredibly difficult whenever somebody's trying to kick or punch at you. Right. It, 
the fallacy of the striking arts, and a lot of them are getting away from it. I know you, or Taekwondo got away from it a few years ago. If you want to be a good striker with Taekwondo, first of all, you got to cross-train boxing because your hands will suck if all you ever You also need to change your Taekwondo. technique because the whole hip-to-chest hip to punch uh-huh. while also not rolling your shoulder. Like, you're supposed to roll your shoulder and bend right. your elbow if you're doing a proper punch. And if you're punching you're from your hip, doing that Bruce you're, you're going to get knocked the hell out. You're almost doing that Bruce Lee punch if you're trying to, because Bruce Lee did the bottom three knuckles instead of the top two, and he did, like, an up angle. You're almost trying to do that if you're trying to actually make your punches worth something. Mm-hmm. And you have to bend the elbow so you don't put all the impact into your elbow. So and Taekwondo is horrendous for teaching. Like, it's great... I always I tell my buddy Scott it's like the gateway drug of martial arts, but as far as the proper technique for doing things, like there's so you got to cross you got to cross train into other stuff if you want to yeah. make it effective. It's not going to be effective on its own. Because he, he the big thing that got him was how big of a difference movie ties kicks are, mm-hmm. and like how much stronger those feel because you put in your whole ass hip into it. Right, and you're kicking with your shin, That's one which is hard. Days. Instead of the top of your foot, that's one. You which you get all of the little bones and stuff. You're gonna break your foot. So, yeah, you got to cross train into other stuff. Like I said, people didn't like getting punched by me, but I punched like a boxer. I didn't punch like a TKD guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no. At the at the end of the day, I don't fully believe the whole. Grappler always wins, but I do think no, that the situation... I think it's an advantage you, a lot of times because, once, because of people's people lack of knowledge. Most like Striking is inherent. Most people know how to punch and stuff. But wrestling and grappling takes so much longer to develop yeah. skill and figure out what to do. So you that can, Once you get that knowledge, you have a distinct advantage over anybody who doesn't. So it takes about four years to get a black belt and a striking art. But if you do it properly. Right, but that's because of all the stuff that you've got to pick up along the way. You learn the strikes in the first six months to a year. It's not that hard to pick up striking. Grappling, it takes about, on average, six to ten years, depending on the art, to get a black belt. And it's much more involved to get good at grappling than it is to get good at striking. And to get it to where it's instinctive, because yeah. like things like trap and roll, I still have to think about, because that is not my natural like want to. There's... There's certain techniques I like more, but that is not... There's so many techniques in jiu-jitsu that do not come naturally in the slightest. No. But I think that was probably a good uh, example of the difference, like, when one has the advantage over the other. Because the first two rounds, you just kept yeah. kept him at distance. And, and then later on, once, once that line was crossed for the jiu-jitsu guy, it was just over. And then I didn't get a chance to finish what I was saying about the uh, fallacy. A lot of those traditional karate styles and that, they all train for the one-hit stop, the one-hit knockout. Which does not exist. Yeah, for the most part. Very rarely. I was going to say, we did just mention one earlier today. Right. But most of the time, you're not Saitama. You're not going to knock people out in one punch. Yeah. So it's usually it takes accumulation but that's not how those striking styles train. They train for like a one-hit knockout. And then they're always shocked when it doesn't happen. You know, when they do that one-hit knockdown and you take them and tie them up in a knot, they're like, I wasn't ready. Let me go again, okay? 
So you let them go again, and the exact same thing happens. And the other thing they don't consider is most people don't like just sit there and wait for you to deck them in the chin. Yes. Because they're, they're going to see that, and they're going to try to move over and like eat it with their shoulder or <laughs> yeah. their chest. People move. They just don't stand there. It's like I used to tell people at the range, it's hard to get them to stand there with that hand on their hip like that. <laughs> so I think we covered this topic pretty thoroughly, and I hope the people that stuck around for the history got what they wanted. So Yeah. Um, I may actually on the next episode go a little bit into some of the things that I did learn in this last research project, since it'll probably be pretty close to being released uh, then. But a lot of the false stories you're going to hear in pro wrestling, they originate from the pro wrestlers. So, And that hasn't changed because I've listened to several of the people that have written more modern histories, like books on the Sheik or books on Gorilla Monsoon, uh, books on Nature Boy, uh, Buddy Rogers. And one of the things they always say is you've got to be careful when you do an interview with the wrestler and take what they're saying because a lot of the times what they're saying is made up or they've got a bad memory or you know they don't remember everything so they will fill in some of the stuff with some more colorful story that isn't true yeah so you've always got to verify and one of the, the only sources that exist and it doesn't even exist for it's Actually, after what normal time period I read about, it's The Fall Guys, published in 1937. And that book is a great place to start your research, but you've got to verify everything because I've found so much information in there that's false or only tells half the story. It's missing key details or some of the things they said just isn't correct. So it's a great place to start, but you got to trust but verify. Right. Which is the same thing you'd have to do with just about anything that comes out of any politician's mouth. <laughs> so Unfortunately, and it the, is election year, so take, yeah, that, yes, take that advice so we, to heart right now. We, we're, we've got ten more months of, I come before you to stand behind you and speak to something I know nothing about. <laughs> mm-hmm. And hope that I can confuse you enough with yes to make you see my way. I don't mean to mesmerize you with my jurisdiction here, but yeah, mm-hmm. he means it's okay. I believe what they say is they're going to uh, try and uh, baffle you with BS. Yeah, right. uh, if they can't dazzle you with their brilliance, they'll baffle you with their BS. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or to quote the Three Stooges, I guess this must be the place because there ain't no other place around the place, I reckon. <laughs> Speaking of the Three Stooges, that is a great metaphor for our politics today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just don't know who's Mo, who's Larry, and who's Curly. Well, I mean, you know, I don't like to perpetrate politics out here on a, on yeah, a podcast. Because so all won't. we will do is yes. offend the living bejabbers out of people. So I, More I, than the politicians so offend the that, living bejabbers out of people. I'll just keep it to myself who I think who's. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't talk religion, don't talk politics. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, Russo wrote that what we were talking about earlier. Uh-huh. But he made a point of saying that he did it before he was a Christian. Yeah. But he wrote, put it in his book that he wrote, you know, 15 years later when he is a Christian. And I told Trey, it kind of reminds me of 
an old church that we had gone to. Uh-huh. But it's not just this church. I've seen it so many times with religious people. Mm-hmm. Now I understand why my dad always warned me about that. You, you He did. Grandpa always said, yeah. watch out for the holy rollers. But um, when we would go to this church, they mm-hmm. would look askance and say something to the boys about, like in Pokemon. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, uh, until your or name is... Right. And, I, and I'd always tell them, hey, until your name is on that birth certificate, you got no say. I right. will decide what's appropriate and not. I don't need your help. Right. And they didn't usually do too much of it because nobody wanted to get into it with me. Right. But... Plus, I, I've called multiple youth pastors blasphemous at that church, so yeah. like, I had a reputation of uh, yeah. calling BS out when I saw it. Well, and, and you know, that's the way a lot of people are afraid to do that. So if you yeah, see it not. and you got to call it out, well, like Trey said, you know, <laughs> ah, that's blasphemous. Well, then call it out. Let them know. Some of these pastors <clears throat> are just bullies. Yeah. We, we heard some of them talk about it. You know, I, 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 you know, I'd have to have a word about, you know, that in the parking lot. I'm like, if one of the pastors had come up to me and said they wanted to have a word with me in the parking lot, I'd have said, well, I'll give you 10 minutes to draw a crowd. All right. <laughs> and then I'll sell tickets. Yeah. But these same people that would look askance at Trey for playing Pokemon mm-hmm. would watch 300, which Uh-oh. was so violent, I turned it off. And yeah. it had an incredibly... Uh inappropriate sex scene from what you've told me as well oh 300 yes yeah it was that's a violent movie mm-hmm. yeah i know but yeah these so i'm just like yeah we're we're picking and choosing what we're morally outraged about you say we? like can't play legend of zelda it's got magic in it here's a book chronicles of narnia and lord of the rings yeah huh <laughs> Yeah. So. Star Wars. Literally, uh, one of the guys told called Vader's, uh, like the Jedi and all that. His old religion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I said. They, they would be very. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Very ambiguous in some of their moral things when it came to things that they liked. But then, because mm-hmm. at the end of when the day, it was things just... that they didn't like, it was like. <gasps> Oh, that's just the of the devil. Yeah. At the end of the day, they were just using the Bible to demonize the stuff they didn't like. It reminds me of the Water Boy. Everything the mom didn't like. That was of the devil. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, but that's about the only thing we will stray towards religion and politics is is just to point out some people misapply. Yeah, people misapply it and just relax and mind your own business. Your life will be a lot easier and a lot Mm -hmm. better. As I like to tell my cousins, do unto others, and then uh, anything else is God's problem, not yours. Yeah. Well, uh, Bobby Heenan used to always say, do unto others before they can do unto you. (laughs) (laughs) So on that note, I think we ought to just go ahead and... What is it? Win if you must, or win if you can, lose if you must, and oh, but always cheat. cheat. Yeah, that was Jesse Ventura. But Bobby was doing to others before they can do it to you. you. Yeah, and a friend in need is a pest. Yeah, that's where his sayings. So I guess we'll end on the words of the great Bobby Heenan. Uh, next time we will talk about some of the misinformation out there in professional wrestling, and we'll probably poke fun at people that have done stupid things since the last time we've 
been on here will probably be spoiled for choice. <laughs> and um, I'm not going to recommend anybody go listen to that clip by Jim Cornette about Russo's oh. idea for the Women's Federation. Gosh. Well, I think it's incredibly entertaining to listen to Jim's reactions to it all. Uh-huh. That's a diseased mind that came up with that stuff. It is. It is. I tell you what, it's... Uh, if he, I hope he has a therapist because I really worry about him after. And then I hope that therapist also has, has a, therapist. a therapist. Yeah, yeah, because he's going to break one of those therapists. That <laughs> after listening to the things that he thought was a good idea to pitch to cable executives, mm-hmm. I worry about the state of his mind. But when he was first pitching it to Jarrett, or you know, Jarrett had to be sitting there going, "What is wrong with this guy?" It would remind and, me of the back in the day when I'd be sitting there listening to the story from one of my guys and they're telling me this looking at me like I should see it as being just completely and totally plausible uh-huh. and I'm sitting there thinking how on earth could a free thinking adult ever think that that had been a good idea yeah exactly and I'm sure that's what Jeff Jarrett was thinking too uh-huh. what on earth is this guy talking about so are you going to sign off here chief yeah later <laughs> Later. (laughs) Have a good one, everybody. We'll see you next week. Yeah, we'll see you next week, and uh, it'll probably just be me and Dangerous Dan, I think, on that one. So until that time, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.